Gratitude That's my everyday What's up, everyone? Welcome to another episode of Quantum Coffee. Today's guest is Dr. Will Van Der and you guys are in for a real treat. This is by far one of my favorite conversations I've had. Uh, This is a really intelligent man, uh, but the cool thing is he is a psychiatrist. He is in um, the space of you know mental health psychology uh, and understands that whole space. And he got into that practice for, with the intention of healing. But the really cool thing about this man and the conversation that we have is his work in the psychedelic space. He's actually worked for MAPS, uh, which you don't know if you don't know what that is. They are the leading nonprofit researching uh, the effects of MDMA psycho-assisted therapy and the impact that it's had. And they're working towards phase three trials through the FDA. And I think they're set to come through in 2023. So there's a lot of really cool things coming up through this psychedelic renaissance. It's something I'm very passionate about. Uh, and I think, you know, it's had such a profound impact on my life. And I know it's having a profound impact on a lot of people's lives, but it's really starts with education and understanding uh, these medicines, um, respecting them, having reverence for them. Um, but, you know, Dr. Will's perspective um, is amazing. And this conversation was definitely one of my favorites. Uh, get your notebook out, uh, open your hearts, open your minds, um, and just listen to the value that this man has to offer. I won't take up too much of your time. We'll just jump right in. But before we do that, I do want to share about the Heart Collective, which I'm really passionate about continuing to build community for former male professional athletes. If it's something you're interested in, or you want to follow along on the journey as we build this community, go to theheartcollective.com. That's H-A-R-T, theheartcollective.com. Check it out. I also want to shout out my wife, Sarah, and her company, Grow Motley. Uh, I know I talk about it on my podcasts. Um, basically, just go check it out. If you're looking for to build a team, you're an entrepreneur, uh, or you're looking for work, go check out growmotely.com. They have amazing opportunities to find and align you with the right kind of culture, team, and community to really find something you're passionate about and help build the future of work within your own life and collectively. Really cool stuff. Go check it out. And for those of you that are premium members, I really appreciate the support. It means a lot to me. Uh, and make sure you stick around for the extended episode with Dr. Will. Towards the end, he drops some mad knowledge and perspective. And if you're not a premium mem- member and you'd like to join that community and support this podcast financially, it is just $7 a month. You can do a year subscription for, I think you get two months free. So you know, this podcast isn't free to produce and really trying to figure out ways to allow my audience to support me in that way and add value too. So I'm doing these extended episodes. Um, most of my episodes are, are extended episodes for premium members. So if you want to get on that bandwagon, it's just $7 a month and I'm putting out four episodes a month. So there's a lot of value there. And if you don't feel called to support the podcast financially in that way, another way to support this podcast for free. And I would really, really appreciate it if you guys just did this. It takes two seconds is go leave a five-star review, say a few nice words. I mean, that's really the only way that a podcast can get uh, rated higher is through the reviews and the ratings. So if you wouldn't mind, if you enjoy this podcast, please go leave a five-star review. It goes a long way in supporting this podcast, takes two seconds. And if anything in this podcast resonates with you, or you think it might have a positive impact on someone in your life, go ahead and share it with them. I know this one specifically will. Uh, I'm really grateful I had this conversation because you know, I have conversations with my parents. I think it's a obviously a generational thing about psychedelics and, you know, this old collective narrative of, you know, they're drugs, they're bad for you, bad trips. Why are we doing this? Um, and having a perspective of a, a clinical psychologist who's doing this work, who's showing up and talks about the research. Um, I think these are the, the places that you can really you know, share this kind of information. I think it really helps open people's minds. And I hope if you're listening to this um, and you have that kind of narrative uh, to really open your mind and just really listen to this really intelligent man who's, who's been a part of the research. He's doing the work. He's experienced it with himself and he's actually seen a lot of healing in his patients. So it's a really cool perspective. Uh, go ahead and share this with anybody that you think might resonate with it. And without further ado, enjoy the show. Will, what's up, brother? How you doing? Hey, Joe. Great to be here. I'm so excited to talk to you. I've been looking forward to this uh, conversation for a while, uh, sharing your wisdom and the work that you do in the world. Um, Definitely excited. So 
let's start with maybe uh, introducing yourself to the audience, a little bit about your background, what you're doing now, and then we can kind of dive in. Yeah. So I'm in, out here in Boulder, Colorado, uh, run academy and assisted therapy clinic. Um, I am a psychiatrist by training. Um, and I also run a, uh, continuing education company that, uh, teaches doctors how to recognize, um, subtle presentations of trauma that they might not be trained well to recognize and also helping, um, those doctors learn how to work with gut brain issues and microbiome issues and all kinds of, um, root causes that might be underneath the symptoms of the folks that they're trying to help. So that's what I'm up to. Yeah. Well, we have a lot to talk about then. Uh, let's start with, with, you know, what just came to me with, I love that you're doing a continued education for medical professionals who already have all this extensive knowledge and education in this kind of Western medical field, but there's so much new research coming out about the microbiome and trauma and, and psychology and all this stuff that's con- continuing to evolve and, and, and exponentially, you know, even over the last couple of decades. And it's almost as if the, the Western medical system and the education system that people go into, the doctors go into, isn't really keeping up with all of the new information. And it's almost hard for even, I mean, definitely like the average person to navigate all this information and, and what is true, what's not, and how do I really take care of myself as a holistic human being? So, you know, talk about kind of where the, the Western medical falls short and, and why, and yeah. kind of where we kind of need to go to collectively to really start, you know, facilitating this healing that really all of us need. Yeah. Well, I think that the, the evolution of our understanding about what we're facing as a species is, is happening a lot faster than medical education can keep up is one way to talk about it. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's, it's a long tradition for doctors to continue to get education over time. You know, they're, we're lifelong learners. We, we keep going, try to stay up to date, but right now with phase three, you know, phase three trials with MDMA and, and now psilocybin is in phase two, it's going to be headed into phase three. We've got tools in psychiatry that, you know, are looking like right now, you know, early evidence, but looking like they're just massive game changers for the whole field. And especially in psychiatry and mental health care, um, the tools that we have available are just super limited in terms of the results they get. So it's pretty exciting time. And, um, you know, then on the more sort of integrated medicine side, when I was in medical school, I literally had one hour of nutrition, one hour, mm-hmm. not a course, Maybe, but right? one, <laughs> one lecture. <laughs> and so what we know now about gut and microbiome and all the problems that can happen from eating a standard American diet and so forth and so on is just, it's exponential what we know now that wasn't there before. So pretty exciting. Um, but it's, it's way too much information for, I think for the medical schools to really keep up with. Yeah, totally. It's, it's really good that you're, you're showing up and doing this work and, and trying to educate the people that are really facilitating the healing that are here for this. Let's, let's talk about a psychedelic. I know, I know you um, and the psychedelic renaissance, it's kind of taking shape and all this new research is coming out, you know, as a, a psychiatrist and psychology, what maybe people that have that old narrative of, you know, the drugs and, you know, psychedelics are bad and bad trips. And so maybe educate a little bit briefly on you know, the power that psychedelics have to really add on to the therapies that we kind of are developing and, and accessing those, those deeper parts of the unconscious and doing this, this healing work and facilitating that. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's actually, you're speaking to, I'm, I was the guy who believed that, that psychedelics were bad and bad trips were bad. And when I, um, got approached by MAPS, the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies, uh, with a request to, consider joining their research team, that was my immediate response. I was like totally brainwashed in medical school. And uh, one of the studies that, that I was taught about in med school was this study where um, a researcher gave a really high dose of methamphetamine to monkeys and then gave a high dose of MDMA to monkeys and then cut up their brains to see what happened in their brains. And uh, when he published the results in Nature, uh, it was like a big deal, you know, and, and the, the group that he reported having holes in the brain, um, actually he said it was because of MDMA, but then he went back and later realized that he had switched the groups after the article came out, but the damage was done. And people like me coming up in med school at the time 
um, all of us heard the story that MDMA causes holes in the brain, but it was actually the methamphetamine group that caused holes in the brain. So it's just an example of how, um, what the impact of the publication of studies can be. And when the, you know, even though that study got, you know, pulled the, you know, the result was already there and, and people like me were believing something that wasn't true. So what, what we now know is that um, based on, you know, massive amount of research on MDMA is that for chronic PTSD, uh, it doesn't look like anything currently available holds a candle to MDMA assisted therapy for resolving really severe uh, long-term PTSD. Um, but the other thing that we're learning is that uh, people are, you know, when you look at surveys of, you know, massive numbers of people, trauma is not something that happens to just a few people. It's not like, you know, when you see 10% of the population as PTSD, there's a lot of us out there, myself included, who have a massive amount of trauma in their background, in their childhood, that they're not even really perceiving as PTSD. They're not thinking about it that way. And so when I think about the potential of psychedelic assisted therapy, I think it goes way beyond what traditionally we would define as PTSD, which has a very narrow like medical definition. Mm, yeah. Let's, let's talk about that trauma because, you know, in my experience, like, and what I've learned and I'm, I'd love to get your perspective is, you know, we all have these experiences that shape our lens of reality in which we perceive. And a lot of yeah. times as we grow older, it doesn't have to be a traumatic experience like sexual abuse or these things that, that really people talk about that really affect their lives. But something as simple as, you know, being left at your grandma's and your parents leave you and you feel abandoned, like that could really shape yeah. your story of reality. And when you're at a young age and you don't have the tools to navigate reality and your perspective is so narrow, those can be imprinted on your neurology and, and your brain and your psyche and create a story of how you relate to the world. And a lot of times those are imprinted on the unconscious patternings that we're not necessarily consciously aware of. And so when we go into the world and we have, you know, triggers or habits, you know, like we get, we get really angry or pissed off in a certain situation and somebody else doesn't, it's like, well, why do I get triggered? And so can you explain a little bit about kind of the trauma, like you're talking about widening the lens for people to understand that we, we all are on this healing journey of really understanding and, and widening our perspective and opening our mind to reality and doing that work on ourselves so that we can show up uh, with more kind of inner equanimity and, and fulfillment, not being so thrown off by the circumstances of life. Yeah, absolutely. I agree with everything you said. And I, here's how I think about it is that we, we come in with, um, you know, as, as a parent, like you are, and like, I am like, we can, we can think about like our, our, our kids as being like, almost like a blank slate. Right. I mean, there, there are definitely, um, elements of like disposition or maybe tendencies, but there's a really, uh, open thing there. There's, there's, there's an open kind of, um, possibility there. And what happens is we start experiencing reality. We start experiencing how we're treated. We start, um, developing like, um, conclusions about like how the world works what's possible, how do relationships work? Um, what happens when I'm um, an infant and I'm afraid? Does somebody come and help me out? Or am I on my own to figure this out by myself, right? And, you know, for example, um, children, like you were giving an example of like dropped off at the grandparents and it seems like, oh, this is great. Like be with the grandparents. Like it'll be a great time for you. But then the, the kid might be having a really different experience there. And so then there's a, there's a mark or like a, a filter that develops of like, oh, um, bad things happen out of the blue to me. Um, and this is how reality works. This is how, you know, relationships work. And so you, you can develop, especially over time when there's a repetition of like little things can build up where you develop a perspective about how the world works that is more fear-based or more defensive. Some people call this the strategic self, like the one who knows how to navigate. And like you said, these patterns get laid down before we have words. And so they're unconscious patterns. But the thing that's also really interesting about the unconscious patterns is that this is called uh, procedural memory is the neurological term. 
And procedural memory is the same memory system that you know how to ride a bike, right? You don't have to think about it. And so it's also motor memory. Mm. And, and so it's everything about how we, um, un- you know, it's said that 80% of our behavior is unconscious. Like all the things we do, our posture, um, how we get out of the car every single time, you know, how we relate to our spouse and our kids, same thing going on. It's 80% automatic. And there's 20% that is creative and curious and interested. And so knowing that, I think we, we, we have to understand that um, those unconscious patterns are heavily influenced by the, um, those earlier patterns that you're talking about. Mm. And so how does, you know, for somebody that is maybe has resistance, like we both did to these alternative therapies with MDMA and psilocybin. So how does MDMA play a role in, you know, cause everybody talks about, you know, therapy and I, I, the, 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 even as men, the idea around going to see a therapist is really shifting collectively, which is really good. But then being able to take it even a deep, a level deeper with, you know, the MDMA psycho assisted therapy, how does that actually help? And how does that play a role and kind of talk about uh, how much more impactful it really is than the traditional Western kind of pharmaceuticals. Yeah. Well, I'll just start with the results of the research so far, which is mm-hmm. just really um, encouraging, really exciting. So basically, um, when you look at the standard treatments like uh, talk therapy or uh, SSRIs like Prozac or Paxil, those kind of things, you're looking at. Um, you know, less than half of people are going to get a really beneficial result from undergoing those treatments. And then when you look at MDMA and, and, and you're also going to have side effects, right? So, you know, the daily SSRI, um, in two out of three guys or even and women too, kills your sex drive. So, and your sexual response. So you, a lot of times people can't even have an orgasm when they take an SSRI every day. That might lead to some more depression, huh? Totally. Yeah. And an impact on your relationship with your partner and mm-hmm. everything else. And then um, on the MDMA side, MDMA-assisted therapy consistently has shown throughout phase two trials and now in the even in phase three in the interim data analysis, two-thirds of people are not meeting criteria for PTSD anymore after only three exposures to MDMA. Um, so the protocol that's being studied, and this is, I think, really important to mention is that the protocol is only three MDMA sessions. It's a total of about 40 hours of therapy. Um, but, and that includes preparation and integration. And, you know, we could talk about how important integration is, Mm -hmm. but, um, but basically the point is that you only take MDMA three times. So uh, it's not like you're taking a medication every day, very different experience. So it's really exciting because um, these these results seem to be long-term durable. So with MDMA follow-up studies, we have data out to like three and a half years where people are still well from PTSD. Mm -hmm. Um, It's like really traumatic PTSD people, right? Like that are debilitating anxiety, can't go out into situations and really affects their life in a big way. Not like the kind of underlying trauma that we all really experience in the lens of which people view reality, but it's something really traumatic that, you know, they have to really work through and for them to actually heal that rather than mask that with all of these other pharmaceuticals, it's really, really amazing. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, as a, as a healer and, you know, psychotherapist, psychiatrist, I mean, it's it's incredibly optimistic and uh, it's kind of renewing on a career level to see, you know, people actually getting well rather than just coping and getting by. Let's talk a little bit about psilocybin. I know one of the studies that, uh, I don't know if I have it 100% correct, but it's like the the efficacy is, you know, like 80% of people rated as like a top five transformational experience in their lives, which is really unheard of in astronomical, especially in actual uh, medical research. Uh, Talk a little bit about, you know, psilocybin and the therapeutic uses for that and kind of the the psychedelic journey. Because I think, I know I did before I experienced it, this huge resistance and fear to psychedelics and, you know, even doing it like socially or recreationally, uh, you know, the bad trips, um, you know, seeing, having really bad experiences, like my deep traumas coming up. So maybe it's something I don't even know that's going to come to the surface. And there's just a lot of fear. And when I did experience it the first time, it was just 
this connection to the numinous. Like I, I really like the veil kind of lifted and I, I understood and it, it really widened my perspective. And I'm sure there's like physiological neural connection and neural pathways and neuro, neurogenesis and neuroplasticity. And, you know, especially I kind of went down the psychedelic path because being a, a former athlete, you know, middle of my career is when all the CTA, CTE, TBI mm-hmm. brain trauma was coming out. And it was really scary. I think they said like 97% of former athletes when their brains dissected have some sort of CTE and that's, that creates an underlying fear. And so I was trying to be proactive and that's when I started finding the research and there's a lot more research about it now, but these fMRI scans of brains on psilocybin and the neuroplasticity, neurogenesis, and it really can re and heal the physiological brain. So maybe discuss a little bit of the research behind that and, and the power that that has to really shift uh, a lot of people's lives. Yeah, absolutely. So when we were talking about MDMA, we we're talking about PTSD. The the big uh, body of research with psilocybin is on right now is on depression, mm. um, and and there are some studies on addiction as well. And um, there's I know some people who are getting some other projects started uh, that are outside of that, like eating disorders and other other issues. I think that once we hopefully um, you know if all goes according to plan and psilocybin is legalized, then we'll be looking at even more um, really interesting opportunities like what you're talking about, like post-concussive syndrome and, um, you know, growing neuroplasticity post um, CTE and stuff like that. I think that's hopefully, you know, going to be on the way. Um, Right now it's mostly on depression. Uh, And once again, it's like with MDMA, it's being combined with therapy. Um, It's going to be interesting to see how FDA deals with the challenge of, you know, they've never had to deal with therapy assisted by a drug before. It's always been, let's look at the drug and see if the drug by itself does anything. Mm. Um, so that's a whole nother fun kind of conversation to look at. But but basically psilocybin and depression uh, looks real similar to MDMA for PTSD, really encouraging, um, very strong um, results, highly significant. And um, it's just a little bit further behind MDMA on the path to uh, FDA analysis for whether to be approved or not. And when, when do you think these, these approvals are going to start coming through, you know, and, and what kind of impact do you think that's going to have on, you know, not just the, the pharmaceutical industry, but kind of, you know, depression and the whole, you know, collective experience? Yeah. Well, the leader of MAPS, Rick Doblin, is saying that the he's predicting 2023 for mdma assisted therapy wow that's really exciting yeah it's pretty close yeah that's like (laughs) fda approval to use it in the in the um, psycho assisted therapy with like Mm -hmm. therapists can actually use it if they're trained properly i guess yeah that's what that's what they're looking at and Mm -hmm. you know it's um there are i mean if you look at pharmaceutical research um quite quite a number of medications that looked amazing in phase two don't make it through phase three. So, you know, we have to keep our fingers crossed right now. It's not a guarantee, but Mm. that's what they're talking about. And then, uh, with psilocybin research, um, the, um, the people who are funding that research are, uh, private equity backed. So there's quite a bit more, um, kind of like momentum behind it. And, Mm. For example, you know, when a pharmaceutical company develops an antidepressant, they can get through phase three typically in a year or a year and a half. And because MAPS in development of MDMA for PTSD is a nonprofit, it's take it's taken some years um, mm. to get it. You know, when all is said and done, it's going to be years to get through the phase three trial. So it's possible that we'll also be looking at 2023 or 2024 for psilocybin. Uh, it's just moving a lot quicker. That's really good yeah. as well. Yeah. I want to yeah. also, I think there's, you know, they're doing studies too with um, kind of terminal anxiety and like using the psilocybin for people that are, you know, approaching their death, end of life um, anxiety. And it's had a huge impact on those individuals as well. Really just, you know, releasing that anxiety and really having this, this trust and faith almost that there is something that it out, is outside themselves, something that is greater than themselves. And I think that's a, you know, for me personally, you know, having a belief, a belief structure around, you know, kind of the universe and, and what it is and trying to make sense of it all. And then having a visceral experience of that thing 
and I know it's subjective and it's different to, to different people, but it, it develops into a, a knowing almost, and it does release a lot of this end of life anxiety. So, you know, talk a little bit about that and the research and then, you know, why that is, what, what is it that they experience that releases that anxiety? It's a great question. Yeah. There's, there's some great research out of, um, Johns Hopkins and NYU on this subject that you're talking about and, and the four out of five, um, people who say, wow, that was like in, you know, in the top three experiences in my life kind of thing. Um, I think that, um, first of all, the big fear that a lot of people have, well, there's different kinds of fears people have about death. Um, one fear is like, this is all, this is all that this waking life, this consciousness, this lifetime is all I get. Right. And so when the lights go out, the party's over and it's, it's done. Right. Annihilation. That's what everybody's scared of. Right. Yeah, exactly. And then, um, I think the other big piece, uh, which you mentioned earlier was, is isolation and kind of this feeling of like, I'm completely and totally separate from, you know, I'm a separate entity. I'm a separate being, I'm a separate unit from the universe. And, you know, the universe is a big thing and, uh, I'm pretty small over here. And so there's like this, uh, feeling of disconnection. Mm, uh, which insignificance as well, right? Like, yeah, yeah. Life doesn't matter. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And 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 I think both of those are spiritual uh, diseases, so to speak. Like it, they're they're um, problems of connection, mm. disconnection. Yeah, and so, yeah, and so I think the cool thing about the opportunity to have a mystical experience with something like psilocybin or LSD or um, or DMT. Is, is the opportunity to actually, like you said, see through the veil of separateness um, and have, have a moment where um, one, of, one of our participants in the MDMA trial said uh, to be able to like get a leg up and be able to see above the trees, to see the forest for the trees and not get lost in this um, story of separateness that we um, typically walk around in our default, you know, kind of conscious mode of I'm a separate being and the world is not a very friendly place most of the time. And I'm defending myself constantly unconsciously against everything, you know? Mm, yeah. Getting lost in the stories that the psyche kind of creates from experience. And it's very kind of, it's that ego, that narrow mind. And it kind of drops you into that, that wider lens of perspective, becoming the observer, which you can access. And it's very important to have stillness practices like meditation and journaling, where you can actually tap into those becoming the observer of the thoughts and the psyche and everything that's working, but it's almost like a, a cheat code, right? Where you, you have an experience like this and you, it drops you out and it really becomes this visceral knowing and experience. How has your, your personal experience with kind of these modalities and these medicines shifted from, you know, you said you used to be kind of like the similar collective narrative of these are bad, these are drugs. And then through your own experience of them, how has that shifted your perspective? Not just you know, personally in, in your own healing journey, but also your connection to that, that greater intelligence, the, the universal life force that is um, around us. Yeah. Thanks for that question. So I, um, my journey of healing really started with traditional psychotherapy and going to therapy, you know, spending an hour with a therapist. And I did that, you know, hundreds of times um, in my late twenties and throughout my thirties and into my forties. Um, and I also, as you were talking about stillness practice, um, developed, a, uh, I met a meditation teacher when I was 31 and I, I tend to take things on pretty full on when I go into something. So it became like a, you know, a couple hours a day practice. For, you uh, India? <laughs> go find the couple. I, well, actually I quit psychiatry, uh, <laughs> when I was, and, uh, yeah. And, um, moved to a little town in Colorado called Crestone, which is full of, um, spiritual communities. And mm, I've been there. Okay. Yeah. It's a beautiful place. Yeah. And I was practicing many, many hours a day. And, uh, and then, you know, and that was a really beautiful time where I got really connected to myself. Um, but in my healing journey, I still was having a lot of problems in relationship and, and uh, my marriage was 
really challenging. And so uh, then someone uh, told me about ayahuasca. And then I met Gabor Mate. And then I went to South America and went into ayahuasca retreat. And what ended up happening was um, the psychedelic in like this traditional indigenous form of healing with a shaman and, um, you know, just really traditionally trained shaman in a traditional context helped me connect to, um, what I would call kind of like the soul of the world or like the, the consciousness of the planet in a way that I had never felt connected before. And it broke through that, that shell of separateness that I had always had, that I always felt in my life. And um, it's interesting, you know, I, I want to mention that, you know, throughout this whole period of time, like I was, I was functioning, like I was practicing medicine, like I'm a doctor, you know, I'm one of those sort of like pretty high functioning people in the world. Mm-hmm. Like, so I, I wasn't like, like deeply disturbed and like not able to, you know what I mean? Like yeah, I, depressed on the street, not really yeah. functioning. Yeah. Yeah. But I, I think part of what I wanted to share about that is that, you know, for people who think of themselves as like being like, I thought of myself as a pretty high functioning person. There's, there's depths of healing that are so profound that you don't even know are even waiting for you because mm. you think, okay, well, this is as good as it gets. Like yeah. it's pretty well, good. That's know? like really sound success achievement. They're high achievers. They're doing a lot in life. They're even showing up and doing good work in the world. Right. But it's almost like, what's the intention? What are you, you might be covering some kind of unconscious, yeah. maybe void or hole within your heart and filling it with that need to do a bunch of stuff. And so, yeah, Absolutely. it's really a deeper, deeper layer than that. And ayahuasca definitely does a great job of uncovering those deeper layers. Right on. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. That's, that's a good way to say it. Cause I, that, that kind of strategy of being, I'm a healer and I help people and I don't need help. I'm the one who gives help, you know, this kind of doctor mentality like mm-hmm. that got really um, blown up in those ceremonies and it was really helpful. So, so I got, um, you know, just really humbled by, um, seeing how much work there was for me to heal. And then through the process of um, undergoing that deep healing work, um, I could begin to see how my relationships were now starting to get impacted and healed through that work that I was doing. Um, And then I started learning about attachment work and attachment injuries and early trauma and, um, and my, my path unfolded in a beautiful way from there. And, um, a lot of things changed and, you know, I can, I, the healing work goes on forever for your whole life. You know, oh, it's like it's an infinite journey. So don't, <laughs> don't feel, journey. have patience and don't feel like you need to get anywhere. Right. It's yeah. just really, yeah. really just show up and, and be present with yeah. it. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Yeah. So, but, but it's, 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 it feels good to see the hard work pay off. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Thanks for sharing that. And thanks for, thanks for showing up in that way. And and it's really cool to have, you know, someone who is so passionate about healing in this and, and getting the degrees and being a doctor and really passionate about it. And then to, to really widen your perspective and be open enough, you know, through your own experience to do this. And then, you know, really bring, being able to bring that work and, and kind of be a bridge to people who, you know, there's a lot of people that go, they're like all about like the shamanism, indigenous cultures, healing in that way but it's not accessible to a lot of people. So how can we bridge and like mold this Western technology advancement into this old connection to the universe, indigenous culture, tribe medicine into one kind of holistic healing modality. And I think it's the cool thing that, you know, I keep coming back to that's really powerful is, you know, you talk about the MDA, MDMA therapy, the psilocybin, and then the ayahuasca. It's like, those experiences, it's like one time or maybe a few times and you get such deep work and, and the lessons continue to unfold. It almost like lays this foundation of tools for you to have the awareness to be able to, you know, realize in real time when you're triggered or when a relationship's off and then being able to navigate that without having to go back into that space every time to like look at it. You really develop in this relationship with yourself and the deeper parts of who you are and how you're showing up in the world. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And and it's like, I've noticed that the, um, the time that it takes to get back into, um, 
a state of regulation is shorter over time. It's, mm. it's not that I don't go into like really deep, dark places like that still happens, but it, it's a lot shorter. Mm. <laughs> so that's, so that's nice. Yeah, that's good. That's a key. And to know that you never really fully arrive, right? And I think the people right. that, that feel that there, there's some deeper work to be done and that's why it's this constant unfolding. And that's really what consciousness is, is this, this evolution, this expansion, this journey that is continuing to unfold and we're constantly learning and growing. And one thing that came to me while you were talking that I'd love to get your perspective on is this, this idea of, of kind of ancestral trauma, this trauma that's passed mm-hmm. down um, and it's, it's, it's kind of hard to, to understand, but when you explain it, like, you know, our parents, they have their own wounding and their, their parents had their own wounding. And so if we don't ever kind of stop the cycle, like the, the, the perspective we have, and we talked about earlier in the podcast, the, the experiences we have and the, the way our parents kind of treat us and project their kind of wounds onto us at a young age, when we don't have the tools or the perspective to understand it, then we kind of inherit those. And then we end up eventually passing those on to our children. And that's kind of what's showing up collectively in our entire society and culture is like this, this collective ancestral trauma that's just kind of perpetuating through our entire systems and culture. And for us to have the courage to show up and look at our own stuff and, and know that sometimes it's not ours. Sometimes there, there wasn't an experience when we were younger that that's coming from this thing. Maybe it's, you know, generations ago that they went through a really traumatic experience. And you think about just the experiences that the last couple of generations have been through collectively, like two world wars, uh, the, the great depression, mm-hmm. all these different wars collectively and, and confronting, you know, maybe their mortality or the end of the world and some similar experience that it seems like it happens every generation, but maybe to talk about the, the ancestral trauma and the importance for us to kind of break the line and do our own healing so that we can show up and, mm-hmm. and really shift the collective narrative as we move forward. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I, I agree with what you're saying that, I mean, the opportunity is to, to hold the line, um, as a, as a lineman, <laughs> you know, <laughs> I know all too well about that. <laughs> so, um, so that, that desire that we all have as parents to not pass down, uh, what was done to us, um, is a beautiful, you know, sacred theme, I think of, of parenthood. Um, and, uh, you know, when I, I think one of the hardest things for me as a parent is watching myself do the thing that I swear I would never do, yeah. <laughs> never say, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but, but, uh, but I agree with you. I think that there are, um, I think we carry that cellular memory from our ancestors and, uh, we, when we, when we take that on, when we, when we choose, we, we take that stand for our lineage to say, look, I'm, I'm putting my staff in the ground and I'm not going to, at least I'm going to consciously choose not to do this and then I'll fail in my commitment, but I'm going to make the commitment anyway, mm. to not, you know, to not, um, let this flow below as, as Resma Menachem would say, cause he, he's a, I don't know if you know him, he's a really interesting, uh, ancestral trauma teacher, um, Mm. in the, uh, BIPOC community. He talks about blowing trauma through your body into other people's bodies. Um, and, uh, and he talks about, he also talks about in addition to world war II and, you know, the depression and all the things that we've been through as a culture is even just like from like in his book, his book is called my grandmother's hands. It's amazing. By the way, he talks about, Europeans, um, basically committing these massive, um, exterminations of each other, not just the Holocaust, but like between like a thousand AD and up to like, you know, 17, 1800, when white people in Europe started fleeing Europe to come to America. I mean, we were just like killing each other off and, and none of that trauma got related to none of it got felt or you know, dealt with on any kind of like level that we would, you know, on a bar that we would set today of what it means mm-hmm. to heal trauma. And so Resma's perspective is that the structures that hold racism in place in America, um, that, you know, were mostly put in place by non people of color, um, are just, um, kind of like unconscious, like displacements of what we used to do to each other in Europe before we got here. Mm-hmm. Um, but 
if you think about the whole history of like our species, I mean, it's pretty gnarly, right? It's pretty brutal. Yeah. That's what I say all the time. Like what a time to be alive. We really do live in one of the best times in modern human history. As far back as I can tell, just like the mass, just division and and just murder and just genocide, like and war and just constantly fighting and battling. And it's, it's hard to like look out, you know, being born into this world and looking at like, why is there so much conflict? Like we're, we're to a place where we've got enough technology and, and understanding and knowing that we're all on the same planet together and the globalization of it all. Why is there so much conflict and division and war and people wanting to hurt each other? And it does make sense to think back of where we came from and this survival and we didn't have as many resources and we we're competing for all that. And all of that trauma is obviously you look around still very much alive in our collective and I think that's this generation. A lot of us are showing up and there is this, you know, I look out, I see this collective awakening kind of happening where people are starting to wake up to it and, and do this deeper healing. And it takes a lot of courage to take ownership of how you are showing up in life and not choosing not to be a victim of, of your circumstance, but really become the creator of your reality. And I think it does take this, this evolution of, of your consciousness, of your awareness, of really trying to wake up and, and rise above the division that we've created in our society and, and the conflict and trying to understand and have real compassion uh, in other people, knowing we're all in this together, we're all humans. And, you know, even all of the stuff where we're taking it out on the environment and destroying the environment and realizing like, right. we think we're separate from nature and we're not a part of this ecosystem on this planet. It's becoming very apparent. And I think a lot of people are waking up to this. Um, how do you see that playing out over the, uh, the coming decades as far as us being in this this real critical time to, to shift that and raise this consciousness level and, and really help facilitate healing for everybody. Cause like we talked about before the podcast, you know, I think the, you said the stat is like, they say one in five people have a mental health disorder. And in the reality, like five out of five people, like everybody right. has some type of, whether it's ancestral trauma in their biology, collectively, energetically, as a planet, we all need to show up and, and do our part to have the courage to look at how are we showing up and adding to the problem and, and how can we heal that within ourselves? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's kind of like, and, and I don't, consider myself like a Christian, but I grew up in a a Methodist church. And I, I think about like the garden of Eden and, you know, Adam and Eve getting kicked out of the garden of Eden. And, and it's, for me, it's a metaphor of being kicked out of our, um, creative mind or our, our, our mind that sees possibilities, our mind that's not dominated by fear and scarcity and, um, being kicked into a phase of like where we perceive scarcity and, and fear as the, the way that we're going to relate to the environment, to each other, to the future. And it becomes, um, what some people call the finite game versus like the infinite game. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like, yep. yeah, exactly. So the finite game of like finite resources and like, Hey, it's about me and my people. It's not about seven generations in the future and everybody's on the same boat, like you said, same planet. So as far as the possibilities, I think are, are big for psychedelics to play a huge role in helping people to feel more connected, helping them to feel less fearful, um, of each other, of people that don't look like them. Um, but we're, we're working against our own physiology. I mean, we're, if you look at how chimps are, (laughs) I mean, they are not friendly with, um, troops of other chimps and they, Mm -hmm. they conduct raids and they murder each other. And, you know, it's like our, our DNA is not that far off from theirs, you know, and how we were. So, but we do have this potential, we have this divine potential, right. And, and that's where it's such an exciting possibility with psychedelics to actually tap into a moment in time where, where the veil is lifted and you can see a bigger possibility. Mm, I love that. Yeah. The mammalian brain was still kind of in the survival instincts and the, the yeah. fear of, you know, if I'm getting hunted by an, an, a lion in you know the jungle and I have to survive, like those things get triggered within us. And if we get cut off by a car, you know, we don't really know yeah, how the tools yeah. to like navigate or transcend that. And I've gone back and forth and I'd love to get your perspective on this being in kind of the psychedelic space and, you know, part of the psychedelic renaissance. And I've gone back and forth on is psychedelics necessary for a collective awakening that is taking place? Is it something that we, you know, deeply need as a part of this? Or you think we would be able to facilitate this without it? Well, 
we haven't really been going down a very good path without psychedelic assisted sessions. I mean, if you look at it, I mean, it's, it's, it's worth saying that, you know, building off of what you said earlier about a stillness practice, that there are ways to get into this kind of more um, connected, more collective point of view without um, the sort of state change that a psychedelic offers, of mm. course. Um, so psychedelics are not the only way to get there, but, and people have been doing that for centuries, right? Mm. I mean, uh, breath work, yoga, meditation, shamanism without plant medicine. I mean, there's a lot of different ways to get in there, <clears throat> but, um, to, to hope that, you know, uh, the majority or even half of the population is going to go out and do those things. I mean, that's always been very esoteric practices that a small percentage of the population goes out and does. So, mm. um, you know, are, could we have a future where there's like a, um, a ritual of, uh, entry into manhood where, 14 year old boys go off with men and have a psilocybin experience and get transformed into a man. That would be cool. Mm. Um, you know, it could be like the way Iboga is used in Africa as a one-time transformative experience. Yeah. Um, yeah I think that's, a big piece that's missing in our society and culture right? is this rites of passage, especially from boyhood to manhood. And you look out in the world and we have a bunch of uh, boys walking around in grown men bodies and they've never actually evolved into that mature masculine presence. Uh, and it's, right. it's pretty apparent and obvious when you look around and it's just infiltrated our, our pol political system, our businesses, our corporations, like all of it is run by this immature, selfish, egotistical nature. And it's perpetuated by not having that rites of passage. And it really is this, this rites of passage of, of needing to die of an old way of being so that you can be reborn. And it's fascinating that that's kind of the common theme in all the spiritual texts too. Like in Christianity, it says you must be reborn again in spirit. And that is the rites of passage that we all must go through. And, and our society and culture is really lacking that. I think the only left, the only ceremony really left that is that is, is marriage. And I think that's why so many people are so attached to getting married because it's we, we desire that rites of past. We desire that transition. We desire that ceremonial container where we can honor a transitional time. And we just are lacking that. And it's, it's gone, gotten all away from us. Yeah. I mean, we, we, we do have to die from the old uh, perspective into the new and it's scary, you know, mm. to, to give that does facilitate that pretty good. Right. Cause it, it allows it does create experiences of, of this ego dissolution that people talk about or ego death, which is really just the construct and the story of who we think we are. And when that dies, there is something left over. And so it gives you this understanding that I am more than my stories. I am more than this ego construct personality in this existence. And then you can connect to the fact that we are not so separate. We are all that thing. We are all connected to that thing. And it's, you know, really develops a deep gratitude to have an experience of separation as well. And it, it allows sure. you to, to appreciate it more and right, honor true. It and not use it to fight against each other, but honor each other's separation in this beautiful opportunity to have an ex a separate experience. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I also want to just also mention that there's this difference between when I meet, when I talk to people who use psychedelics a lot recreationally or socially, um, typically they're not having these kinds of transformative um, experiences you're talking about. Um, so I think, I think the context matters a lot, you know, set and mm -hmm. setting the intention, um, what the space is like that you're in. Um, and, the, and the integration, right. Being able to integrate the experiences yeah. into your world. Talk a little bit about integration and the importance of it when you do go, because there might be people listening like, Oh, I want to go try psychedelics, but like proper facilitation being in a, a, the right container, it, it all plays a role in not only the experience, but the transformation that can take place. Yeah. So, so there's sort of two pieces to it. One is the way that the container is held. And, and that's, we talk about that in terms of set and setting, like what, what your intention is going into it, how you set up the space, who you're with, um, that, in the met in the medical research context is really carefully controlled. Um, but it's also, um, you know, based on decades of research into what's most effective in terms of how to teach someone, because you really have to learn how to relate to a psychedelic. You have to be taught how to do that. It's not, nobody really knows 
without being taught how to relate to a psychedelic experience. So, mm-hmm. so that's all kind of set and setting. And then integration generally points toward what happens after the psychedelic wears off and, and what's done at that point. So oftentimes, um, people will have an experience on a psychedelic, whether they call it a good trip or a bad trip, or they have an experience, they have a psychedelic experience. And, and afterward they think, wow, like I'm changed. Like I'm, I'm transformed. Like I had this, I have this new download. I got this new epiphany and here's how I'm going to, I'm going to go out and change my life. And then they go out, they go back to their, their home or wherever they go back to work or whatever. And all of a sudden they, they realize that it's going to be a hell of a lot harder to make those changes than they realized. Um, and that can be really devastating for people for one thing. Um, other times people have like a really euphoric, like a union with God experience or union with the universe experience. And then uh, it wears off and they kind of forget about it. Mm. And then they're just sort of back in their routine consciousness. Mm. And it, and so there's a religious scholar who um, he died a few years ago, but his name is Houston Smith. And he was, he's kind of like a, um, like a, like a modern Carl Jung kind of guy. And, and basically he was really um, instrumental in helping the native American church get peyote back on track when temporarily they lost um, connection with that through the uh, Supreme court. And, but his, um, his work uh, all hinged around the issue that, I think is really central to integration, which is how do you change? How do you shift from a state change? So a state change would be like that beautiful picture of what the brain on psilocybin looks like with all the connectivity between all the different areas that wasn't there before. That's a state change Um, into a trait change. So Houston Smith said that the, the purpose of spiritual practice is to move from a state change to a trade change. So that basically means in my view, in my view, how do we, um, if, if we got to see the above the forest for the trees on the psychedelic, how do we learn how to keep our vision broad and expansive and creative and resourced rather than just rubber banding back into finite resources and scarcity and fear and separateness and all that illusion. Mm. So in integration practices, there's a wide range of different things that people do that are highly effective. And, you know, we could go down that rabbit hole and talk about that, but integration is basically everything that happens after the the ceremony or the journey. And, and um, that could go on for a year after you know, one psychedelic experience mm. and you could, you could keep unpacking it and keep learning from it. And, you know, there, there there's also a tendency that, um, people who are into psychedelics often, not all the time, but uh, a lot of times get into a mentality of like, Oh, I got to go back to the psychedelic again, get more downloads, but they actually haven't done the work of integrating and unpacking what mm. they were given in the first place. Yeah. Huge issue. Um, I, I see that as well. And yeah, like how can I access that knowing and that knowledge and that connection to the divine in my waking life? And, you know, that's kind of the, the, the path of like the, the monks, right? They're like sit and meditate and if they are connected, they are having downloads, they're having a wider perspective of reality without the hallucinogenic, right? And so not right. using it as a crutch or an escape because just like any other therapy, I mean, everything is medicine until it's, you know, toxic and you, and you overuse it or use it in the wrong way. And so it's really doing it with the proper intention and really understanding your, why you're doing it and how can I learn to you know, widen my perspective through those experiences because it's so profound. And then how can I use the tools at my disposal to try and embody that energy and that connection, that openness, that connection to, and that compassion for others, you know, in my everyday life. And I think one of the hardest parts that came to mind when you're talking is, you know, same thing with people that, you know, are addicted to heroin, they go to rehab and then they go back into the old environment. Like how many times the relapse happens and the environment is so huge because you have this transcendent experience and you go back into the energy of all the people you're connected to. And it's just so easy to fall back into that, that energy because we all carry a vibration and we usually right. come into resonance with our environment. And so yeah. 
the hard part really is like, if I'm in a, an environment that's not conducive to the, and what's good for me, like how do I shift that? And I think that's really, really challenging for a lot of people because it creates a lot of change, a lot of transition. And same thing with the work that I'm doing with the transition from professional sports into the real world. Like we all go through these major transitions and it's really hard. And a lot of times our, our reality and, and it gets harder before it gets better because it kind of isolates us, but we, we need to go on that journey. And that's really what it's about is we can't, we're constantly growing and evolving. And if you stay stunted into an environment, because you have the fear of the unknown and the fear of what is life going to be like without this comfort zone. And that's why one of my biggest things is get outside your comfort zone, mm-hmm. go towards the things that scare you the most. And the more you can do that, it, it's literally will create new neural pathways in the brain. Mm-hmm. And it'll actually lead to that wider perspective that we're talking about these psychedelic experiences lead to. If you can go travel, read new books, learn new things, meditate, connect with new people, all of that leads to new physiological, new neural connections and actually expands your perspective. And then you can actually access these more higher levels of awareness without necessarily having to go into those spaces. Yeah, absolutely. I agree with you. The, the, the learning state, the state of, uh, encountering novelty is a state that is, um, very conducive to neuroplasticity and, um, developing new connections. It, It feels different. Um, it's, it's like, um, taking on the right kind of inspiring challenges in your life to develop, uh, deeper levels of resilience. Yeah. That's one thing I, I love, like, cause even, you know, as someone that's aware, done all this work, how easily I can find myself getting in a routine, waking up and like, yeah. that's just the way our brains and our, our human nature is, is like, it wants to create these automatic processes so it can be thinking more. And so if you're not careful, you can easily get stuck back into these habits. And so I think spontaneity is really a huge thing that you should incorporate into your life. That's not really talked about that much. Like go, go, when you're, when you go on a walk, go walk somewhere you've never walked. Cause just the act of doing that will create new experience and new, you know, and when I went and traveled in the van, it was like the beautiful part of that was I was constantly going into the unknown, going in outside my mm-hmm. comfort zone. I, it was, I didn't know what to expect. And so it, it created this, this acute presence of the now as it was unfolding. Mm-hmm. And that's really, if you can live in that place, I mean, that's really what we're all trying to get back to is, is how can I be as present as possible with this experience as it's unfolding, not really judging it. But a lot of us get lost in our thoughts and our heads, projecting, regretting about the past. And mm-hmm. when we're lost in our heads, we're not actually living life. And that's when people, you know, speed through life trying to get somewhere. And we talked about earlier, like the people that are really successful and high achievers and they're constantly trying to get somewhere. Are they really you know, making the most of their life and understanding that this life is impermanent. It's going to be over someday. So how can I soak it up and be present with the experience as it's unfolding? <laughs> That's the whole question, right? And not just live in some kind of automatic, uh, unconscious perception that it's not even seeing what's actually happening in the present because the the lens is so thick from ancestral trauma and personal trauma that you're just like, same shit, different day is that is the saying, right? I, I, and we haven't talked about ketamine yet, which is the the kind of, you have, you have a ketamine clinic and uh, you know, I know we're coming up on the end, but I'd love for you to talk a little bit about ketamine as a therapy and you know, how it differs from other psychedelics and MDMA and kind of as a tool, the impact that it can have uh, on people. Yeah. So I've been, uh, I started giving people ketamine therapy about four years ago, right at the end of when I was involved in this phase two trial with MDMA. And uh, part of it was because I went into that set of circumstances with MDMA assisted therapy, referring some of the people in my practice into the study and watching them get well was really encouraging. And it sort of destroyed my, um, motivation to provide ordinary therapy without yeah. psychedelics. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, I could see how that could happen. <laughs> yeah. So ketamine is the one legal psychedelic that's out there. And some people would say technically it's not a psychedelic because it doesn't interact with the same serotonin receptor that classical psychedelics interacts with. But if you define psychedelic based on the experiences people have, people definitely have psychedelic experiences on ketamine. Mm-hmm. Um, Ketamine is really useful for treating severe depression. And in particular, it's incredibly effective for uh, severe suicidal thinking. And it's also conducive to therapy because it only takes a couple hours to have a session. 
Mm. Yeah, it lasts so, like it doesn't last like eight hours like a psilocybin trip might, right? You can really get exactly. in and get out. Exactly. So yeah. what is that? What would you how would you describe a ketamine experience for someone that's never had it? Like what is the thing that is, you know, I know there's like probably stuff going on in the brain scientifically that can help you, you know, transcend that that depressive episode or suicidal thoughts, but what is the experience kind of like, I know it's probably subjective, but how does it help in that way? Well, it also has big impacts on your ordinary consciousness, like the default mode network, for example, gets impacted by ketamine in a really specific and unique way that's different from how psilocybin and DMT impact the default mode network. It um, has this there's there's a really cool paper that illustrates the point with fMRI where they show that people who are very depressed and obsessive and ruminating with negative thinking have particular parts of the brain that are involved with a default mode network as a part of their depression that gets normalized after ketamine for a few days after one ketamine uh, treatment. Interesting. And Can you with, just describe the default mode network briefly, just so people that might be unfamiliar? Sure. Default mode network is really our ordinary consciousness. It's the neurological equivalent of our ego. So it's it, kind of where it's the ego the lives in the physiological brain. Yeah. Exactly. Okay. Exactly. Yeah. So people who have severe depression or obsessive compulsive disorder have a really strong electrical pattern of firing between these nodes in the brain that represent the default mode network. And so you could say that their sense of self is too strong. It's in a, in an unhealthy way, it's too strong. Um, and people who suffer from schizophrenia on the other end of the spectrum don't have enough self. Their default mode network is not strong enough or it's more disorganized. Yeah. Yeah. And then w- they show that uh, people who've been meditating for decades have a, um, what you could call a healthier signature on the electrical pattern of the default mode network where they're less obsessive, they're less, um, they think less and um, they're just more open to other people. Mm. Yeah. It's fascinating how like the scientific kind of research and world and like the mystical, like millennial old teachings are kind of starting to come back into one another and, you know, like these ideas of like the Buddhist philosophy of, of non-attachment and letting go and surrender is like letting go of the stories of who we think we are. And now we can track that default mode network of where the stories actually live. And when that shuts down in a, in a psychedelic experience, we actually transcend into more connective, more unity consciousness, which we realize, oh, we're not that story. And that's really kind of fascinating how it's all coming together. And I, I absolutely love that. It's basically the same thing as what you were saying about going for a walk and going in a different place. That's, that's what's happening neurologically on a psychedelic is that the Robin Card Harris, who's done a lot of this default mode network research. I, I watched him, he was giving a talk in our training uh, last weekend, and he was talking about how the electrical activity spills out of these um, narrowly defined areas in the brain and different areas start talking to each other that weren't talking to each other before. Mm. And by virtue of that, you're having like this more expansive experience and the breakdown of self and other occurs in that mystical moment. Mm. It's very interesting. Yeah. Yeah. It's beautiful. I really appreciate the time. And this has been one of my favorite podcasts by far sharing this, this, this knowledge, this wisdom that you have from, you know, the scientific perspective, but also experiential. And I think that's a real rare thing in this kind of developing field um, of people that actually, you know, understand experientially and are really passionate about being of service and really trying to be this bridge. So I really appreciate you coming on, sharing your wisdom, sharing your knowledge. Um, I'd love for you to kind of give an opportunity to, to plug where people can find you, uh, kind of what you're working on, um, right now. Yeah. Thanks Joe. It's been an absolute pleasure to be here. It's always great to hanging out with you. Yeah, uh, I, uh, what we're working on right now is a psychedelic assisted therapist training. There's a huge bottleneck in getting people up to speed on how to work with people in this, um, more traditional psychotherapy kind of medical context. And so uh, if you want to learn about that training, we just launched our first 
cohort, we have about 250 people enrolled and, and we're going to be uh, enrolling another group in January. And do they need to be traditional kind of therapists or educated in that way to be eligible? Yeah. So if you want to enroll in that, you have to be a, a licensed therapist. Okay. Um, but people in your audience who want to learn more about what we're up to with our institute can just go to psychiatryinstitute.com. Mm. Um, and for the, if there are therapists listening and you're interested in learning how to do psychedelic assisted therapy, it's uh, psychiatryinstitute.com forward slash psychedelics. Beautiful. Yeah. All that will be in the show notes. I did have one final follow-up that kind of came to mind when, when it comes to um, therapists learning how to facilitate, you talked about it's hard to relate to a psychedelic experience and you need to really learn how to do that because it, it does take some nuance. Um, is it important for the facilitator to have had an experiential um, you know, session with the psychedelic to connect in that way? I think so. And mm -hmm. there are a lot of teachers in the psychedelic therapy space who believe that. Um, it's just really, it's so ineffable to try to describe what people go through. Mm -hmm. um, and, 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 but the other thing is that people go through these extreme states when they're on a psychedelic. And if you haven't had to do that yourself and develop the confidence and the trust in the journey yourself, mm -hmm. then you might overreact when you see your patient going through something really intense that they just need to be held in that experience. Mm, yeah. That's beautiful. I love that. Yeah. Being able to know like having, having navigated it before, cause it does take, uh, you know, some, some trust and faith and surrender and, and confidence in yourself and the process and being able to hold space for another. And that experience is, is definitely important. Uh, thank you guys so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed this podcast, uh, for you premium members, make sure you stick around. We're going to have an extended episode, uh, with Will here. We're going to talk, ask him what his secret to the universe is. I'm really excited to get his perspective. If you're not a premium member and you really want to have that, have that added value, it is, and you want to support this podcast financially, it is just $7 a month. Um, there's a link in the show notes. You get access to these extended episodes, plus amazing other premium content. If that's something you don't feel called to participate in and you want to support this podcast anyway, a really great way to do that is to leave a five-star review, say some nice words uh, about this episode or about the podcast in general. And if anything in this podcast resonated with you uh, from the conversation, which I'm sure it did because I learned a ton, I hope you did as well. Uh, and you think it might have a positive impact on somebody you know, go ahead and share it with them. Uh, this is really the intention behind the podcast is really trying to share this information and really trying to help facilitate this healing collectively because the world definitely needs it. Thank you, Dr. Will, so much for coming on. Thanks, Joe.